All right, so today on the Sound Iron Podcast, we're talking with Stephen Malin. He's an award-winning music composer based in Atlanta, Georgia. He uh, wrote a book called Family First Composer, which is a number one Amazon bestseller, which is really cool. And uh, you've founded the Video Game Music Alliance. So or, you know, we're happy to have you on and talk to you, and thanks for coming on. Well, thanks for having me, guys. This is fun. Uh, well, I have a couple questions for you right off the rip. One of your bio spots says medieval horror music on dark dice featuring live orchestra, choir, and soloists, including co-writing with David Wise, who is the composer of the Donkey Kong Country series. So I just need to hear more about that. (laughs) Oh, man. So that's a story. Uh, So growing up, I loved playing video games, and I have a few heroes that are at the top of my list forever. And that is David Wise from the Donkey Kong soundtracks, uh, probably Nubo Umatsu from the Final Fantasy series, and then Koji Kondo um, from Super Mario Legend of Zelda. I think of, of any soundtracks I've ever listened to, those are probably the most memorable and the most singable, um, and definitely ha- had a place uh, in my career just starting off wanting to learn this stuff on piano and, and play around. That's always been a goal. It's always been this, you know, impossible goal to work with these people. And it's kind of crazy that there is a show called Dark Dice, which is created by Fool and Scholar Productions. The lead creator there, Travis Vingroff, um, he's become a, a dear friend in the last eight or nine years. And he had this crazy idea to basically be the forerunner for a new type of entertainment called audio dramas which kind of harkens back to the 1920s serial radio drama time of time period where people would gather around a radio and as these communities, as families, they would all listen to, you know, War of the word, Worlds or whatever. And it's crazy now with technology how obviously podcasting and, and everything has come and the internet. So it's pretty crazy that this, this technology has come to a point where we're kind of full circle back to those types of community moments. And so over the last eight, nine years, this whole audio drama thing has really, really sprouted up. And, and these shows created by Travis and, and his team, they have millions of listeners on these shows. And um, this is their, I don't know, seventh or eighth show. And something about this one has just popped. And I don't know what it is about it, whether it's the Dungeon Dra- Dungeons and Dragons you know, aspect of it or the live play or... The fact that they're able to bring on Jeff Goldblum, of all people, as one of the lead actors, I'm sure that had a, a large part of this. But that show skyrocketed to um, the number one fiction podcast in the world for a time period, which is insane. And through that, all of a sudden, they have more funding. All of a sudden, they have more notoriety and more expanse and reach. And, and uh, Travis, in general, I told you this is going to be a long story. Travis, in <laughs> general... Um, He's one of those people, I I call him a connector. So he just seems to know everyone in the industry. And he has a funny background of being an accordion player in rock VGM bands, cover bands. So he's in because of his crazy background with uh, making his own comic book series and, and whole universe in that aspect, he's constantly going to conferences. So all of that to say, he's in this very sweet spot. And it was like the universe aligned to where he literally gave me the ultimate blank check, so to speak. Um, so a few years ago, he said, Stephen, for this new show that we're writing, Dark Dice, I don't expect anyone to like it or, or anything. It's just something fun I want to do. Is there one composer in the world you'd love to work with? I want to make it happen. 
And, and as a client, I've never had that question asked. It, it wasn't, hey, you know, what's the best music you can write for my project? It's let's bend the whole show around you working with your favorite composer. And so I gave him a list of some of the people and he's like, maybe, maybe, maybe eh, that one. Let's do that one. And so he landed on David Weiss, who we have a shared mutual respect for. Um, and the rest is history. We reached out. He said yes, and we did it. Um, absolutely incredible experience. And, and from that, we were able to kind of snowball that. It's also working with Hitoshi Sakimoto, Final Fantasy composer, and hopefully some more down the line with some future shows. Um, and it's just been this wild ride of collaboration. And I think some of the most fun memories so far in my entire career have come from this show because I've gotten to work with with literal legends in the space. So what was the co-writing process like? Yeah, so for that one, that was literally a um, a back and forth. I think we went back and forth about 20 times because I I found maybe the hard way. I learned that, oh, okay, this is going to take some time because he and I are both very um, committed to excellence and I think part of that is neither of us was happy with it. We just kept pushing it, pushing it, pushing it, and going back and forth. Um, and I learned at that time that he was using Cubase, and I was barely using Cubase at that time. And I said, I'll make the switch for this. Let's figure this out so that we can start collaborating literally in the same session, going back and forth. And what a masterclass that was of learning someone I admire and respect so much like literally getting hands on the session and seeing what he did. And, and then I would make some changes Then he would make some changes and I'd write a melody. Then he'd write a melody and it turned into this, this crazy combo. Uh, and we're actually even right now, the music that we wrote, I don't know if it's even officially aired yet. We wrote it. This is like a year and a half ago, but fun, funny story. Once again, because we're both, uh, we both have a really high bar of excellence. Neither of us was happy with the final recording session of all things. Mm -hmm. And so we're actually doing some re-records in March of this year to try to (laughs) finish this dang track up. But it's one of those things that this is a very special experience that I don't want to botch. I want to give my absolute best to. And so if that takes a re-record, so, so be it. Yeah. Well, what are some, some of the takeaways that from that experience of working with him, anything in particular that, you know, some important takeaways? Hmm. I think for me, I, I said it was a masterclass. I think from a technical perspective, it was really cool to be able to see how someone I admire works very differently than me. But honestly, uh, on the personal level, it was also very humbling because I think up to that point in my career, you know, I was the big shot who could always tackle whatever you could throw at me from a client perspective. And I think I had to have my, uh, my bubble popped in a healthy way, meaning, oh, holy crap, this guy is so much more talented than me and so much more revered than me. And it really forced me into humility and to learn, okay, if, if we're going to make this work, I've, my ego has to go away, mm-hmm. you know? And it doesn't mean necessarily that because it's a collaboration, it doesn't, it doesn't mean that I don't have any value to bring to the table. It's just we have very different styles. And I think that was actually the the fun and maybe frustration at times, but ultimately the reward is let's see what we can do to truly be collaborative and listen to each other and, and really try some new things. And I think that always brings out the best. Collaboration is never easy, but it, yeah. it it's always rewarding. 
Yeah, I think anytime you could work with someone who is like kind of puts you in the, in that sort of mental place, you know, where it's like, all right, you know, I need to like kind of sit back a little bit, or, or you know, or, or like you said, check your ego. Like, I, I think working with people like that, where it's like you yeah. feel like, man, this like this person's way way better. It's like going to the gym with someone who's been bodybuilding for, you know, it's like, all right, like. I need to shut my mouth and just listen or, you know, that sort of thing. So it's like anytime you can do that kind of thing, I think it's always going to push you and just make you that much better. So that's really cool. Um, I wanted to talk a little bit about the video game, video game music Alliance and, and how you started that. So what was the, the whole reason that you wanted to, to do that? Yeah. Thanks for asking about that. Um, that has been an all consuming part of my life for the last year. So I actually officially launched Video Game Music Alliance in January of 2022. So it's literally been a year. Um, it's been a wild ride because I've started a lot of businesses and I've failed at a lot of them. Um, so I think going into another <laughs> business idea, this is just what it means to be an entrepreneur in general. The only real steady, consistent thing in my life has been music and kind of growing the, the freelance entrepreneur career that way. But from a business perspective, what really launched the group it came from a culmination of, number one, my book, and the reason behind the book, Family First Composer, is it came from, there were 25 questions, just as a coach, as a course creator, as a, as a private instructor, there were 25 questions that kept coming up every day, and they always related to these same topics about composition, production, technology, and business, and, and some of the nuances of contracts, and working with clients, and how to compose this, this, this. And it got so repetitive that I said, dang it, I'm just going to write a book about it. And I ended up taking a bunch of my blog posts, combining them together, and just kind of making it into one package. And that's where the book was born. But that didn't seem to be enough because the thing about a book, as wonderful as books are, they're still just information. There's no transformation. There's no um, application. And so what happened is people would still ask these questions. And I decided to form these friends together into one community. Um, it was under a previous name earlier, and we started a Facebook group, which grew into eight or 900 different people, and it became extremely active to the point where, okay, maybe I should take one step further, create a Discord server as another way to kind of have more live type uh, interaction with everybody. Um, and that's really where Video Game Music Alliance was born. It was just a community group, a, a free resource for people to, to hang out and, and share feedback, and that Discord server is still around today, and people are loving it. But I still realize that people will only grow as much as they invest. It doesn't necessarily mean financially, but their time, their energy, their resources, that's where people see success is when they actually dig into something. And so I threw out the crazy idea, okay, what if we actually start a more formalized education, not an academy and not a certification or anything, but what if we just start formalizing this? having some courses, having some assignments, having some feedback, having some coaching calls, bringing in masterclass guests, and the rest is history. And over the last 12 months, it's been a, a paid membership group that started off quite small, about 15 people. And as I kept getting feedback from others, I was able to hire on some more help and really put some structure and put some polish onto it. And, and here we are, and uh, I think we're making a really big splash, and it's been absolutely incredible. Um, we have some really cool things lined up for this upcoming year. It's awesome. Yeah, because uh, I, I heard about you first from the uh, we were actually talking about this on a recent podcast. We were, um, we've I found this article from Composer Code and he wow. was talking about you. And uh, and I was like, oh, I was like, that's cool. because He's talking about like, the whole like music pack 
thing. And I was like, oh, that's really interesting because I, I never really heard about that, of you know, people doing like video game music packs and, and things like that. And I was like, oh, that's really interesting. And then I was just browsing on YouTube and then I stumbled on one of your live streams, which I, I think is really cool. And uh, so it seems like a lot of the stuff that I've seen of you, like, you know, there's a lot of like video game composing stuff. And w what are some common things or questions that you get asked that and for anyone who's listening who's wanting to get into video game composing like anything ad advice that you would want to give anyone just kind of like you know like a few different tips sure whenever i do coaching or even with groups i really try to simplify it down to two different career paths you can do both um, but the quickest way specifically in the video game music industry to start making money and to start advancing your career is to actually start making money. And as simple as that sounds, there's two avenues to go. You either go the passive income route, which is licensing, which has been around in the music industry forever, which is simply you write a piece of music and then you sell like a product and that starts to earn you money perpetually because it's always being sold. And the other side is to get some actual freelance gigs working with game developers. And the cool thing that I've noticed over the last few years with the rise of technology, we have these game engines called Unity, Unreal, there's a bunch of others, but those are the two main ones that indie developers are using. So typically, what I've learned just from market research and some from experience and working with these students is that there's typically uh, independent game developers. These are, these are kids out of college or they're hobbyists, usually around the age of 20 to 30, 35. And these are guys that have about $50 to $100 in their pocket to spend to help improve their game, to finish it, to actually get it out to market. They're not going to make a lot of money on this, but it's their first project and they need some help. So that means they can't hire additional programmers. They can't hire a composer, a sound designer. So what do they do? Well, they're inside their game engine making the game and maybe it's a two or three year process. And then at some point it clicks, oh man, I need some help. So they go to the, the built-in marketplace, the Unity Asset Store, or they're in the Unreal game engine. So they go to the, the Unreal Marketplace. And there's other stores like itch.io and Game Dev Market. What they do is they go to these sites and they're going to look for what's on sale. They're going to look for what has the biggest bang for their buck. And they're going to buy these asset packs. They're going to buy some, you know, prefabbed, houses or characters or models or something to start with that they can then do because not everyone's a programmer not everyone's an artist right and they need some help to just polish up their game and when it comes to audio well I saw an opportunity to jump into this space because I was wondering why is no one else doing this I have hundreds even thousands of, of pieces of music and sound effects that I could just package up put some polish on it and the, the competition out here is weak. There's not much going on here. There's The artwork doesn't look great. There's no clear description of what it is. It's not really made for game uh, developers. So I took a shot. And by doing that and, and constantly working on this, uh, my music packs have become some of the best selling on the sites. And so as soon as I started to see some success from those, I figured, okay, these are the questions I'm getting is, how does that happen? How are you making tens of thousands of dollars from these music packs that you're putting together and I started to notice that there's a trend here and it's not going to last forever because every marketplace gets oversaturated at some point mm -hmm. and the legislation of game music is has not caught up to where um, film and tv licensing and broadcast music right there's all these strict licenses about how you can use it video games are just they're open-ended it's a one-time royalty free payment right it's a license to then use however you wish inside the game but all that to say, um, 
I, I typically steer game composers. If you want to get into this industry, yeah, you want to get some freelance gigs eventually and you want to build up your, your, your online presence. But what better way to do that than to practice writing, practice writing for genres and practice writing, you know, loops and, and dynamic layers and all the things we do in the game industry. Package them together into very sellable products, put them on the stores, and you're going to start to see some passive income every single month that it's going to start to fund this hobby and this can help you in three to five years turn this thing into an actual career as you're building your portfolio Um, because there's always the cases where people you know game developers buy these assets they put them in their game and then they say oh my gosh this is really great on my next project let me hire you for custom music and you can build some really cool relationships this way that's interesting when when you make the music for these packs are they like dynamic like multi-layered things that are like you know like three different tracks for you know, like for one piece of music or, or how does how does that usually go the good news about this this part of the market is there are no rules everyone's trying everything and i like that and that's what i'm encouraging people to do do what you think is going to work best and talk to game developers present them hey does this sound useful now i will say statistically the simpler something is the easier it is to use so i am finding that when you do all these complex layers and, and dynamic music, it's not super usable because independent game developers who are typically beginners, they don't know how to implement it. They don't, mm. they don't understand the usage. So at the end of the day, write good melodies, uh, have very clear titles, have very clear um, descriptions. If it's a battle, call it a battle. If it's a town theme, call it a town theme. You know, you don't need to get all artsy-fartsy on you. And I, I feel like the people who are doing well at it, they're just making really simple but profound, well-produced music, just like any marketplace. Um, yeah, I didn't even know that the Unity Asset Store existed until today, and uh, your name came up, and I was like, ah, oh, the treasury. And, uh, <laughs> it's pretty awesome. So could you tell us about working on Beard Blade? Sure, what would you like to know? Um, specifically, like, the making of the music and landing the gig in the first place. That is not the most typical way of landing a gig, but that is that was a serendipitous, uh, a literal cold call type situation, which I don't, I don't even recommend people do. Uh, basically, I was scrolling through Twitter one day and I saw some screenshots for this upcoming game. And it looked like an absolute dream of a project because it was uh, this 2D platformer. It looked like a Super Mario game. Um, super colorful and just gorgeous animation. And it was made in that Super Nintendo Game Boy Advance style. So I messaged the, the lead developer, shook up a conversation, and that led to you know writing a demo for them. They loved it, and we went from there. And that game, we actually worked together for, I think, about three years. Oh, wow. And I've noticed in the indie scene, that's pretty typical, is you... Like in that situation, I think I wrote one or two pieces of music every month for about three years. So instead of having this big commission to do, you know, an hour of music or whatever, ended up an hour and a half of music, it ended up just being a little bit every month, which in its own way, it felt like a like a paycheck or a, a salary, which was nice. And in those earlier days of trying to form a career out of this, that was super helpful. That was a super fun game. I got to make my own samples. Um, I'm a, I'm a super nerd when it comes to 16 bit and eight bit retro music. I really enjoy that simple style because it, and for me anyway, I either want to write highly produced, polished, 
music that's like live orchestras and live choirs and all this stuff, or I want to go the opposite and I want to make it uh, a super limited palette, you know, give me four channels and make me write something interesting with that. That's, that's super interesting to me because it forces me to be creative in the composition instead of the production. I watched your, your video about making 16-bit music, and I think you were in Logic and using the, the tape saturator and oh, distortion yeah. and all that stuff, the uh, no attack and super short release, and that was, that was awesome. The game looks really fun, too. Yeah, you should go play it. Go play it on Steam. It's been out for a while. I feel like I've grown a lot as a composer since then, but that was... I don't want to call anyone a stepping stone, but that that project, I think, grew me a lot to be able to take on larger projects because that was one of those early career projects that taught me how to work with a game developer for a long period of time, how to communicate artistically, how to send reference tracks uh, because the team, super artistic people, clearly. I mean, look at the art. It's mm-hmm. gorgeous. Um, yeah. But so often we did not see eye to eye on what the music should sound like. So we literally communicated through music instead of words, which I've found to be a really powerful lesson when communicating with game developers, especially artistic people. Cause you know, they'll say, write a colorful track. Okay, cool. And I might, what does that mean? You know, does that mean, yeah, write a blue track. Okay, cool. I'll use something mellow, like a saxophone or whatever. No, I didn't mean bright like a brass. I meant, clarinet you know whatever um Uh and that's one of those times that uh for that game i think on every track i asked for three or four reference tracks like i have to hear what you're talking about from something Mm -hmm. else that already exists otherwise we're just gonna do this all day and i learned that the hard way by doing you know 10 to 15 revisions on tracks until i learned okay i need some references let's let's go back to the basics in that poor game um, the, the team is still tweeting about this. You should follow them on, on Twitter, uh, the beer blade game dev team. Um, okay. even, even though the game came out years ago, they're still posting all of the, um, like demo tracks we worked on together and like the original art assets, which I think is super interesting. It's like behind the scenes five years later. <laughs> <laughs> um, I think it's interesting because so much, I think we spent the first one or two years almost everything we worked on together got scrapped and they just started Mm -hmm. over because they had this big grand vision of what this was going to be, but then they didn't get all the funding that they needed to actually make it happen. They had to keep their day jobs instead of working full time on this game. And it was just a mess. Um, But they were able to salvage it, shrink the game down considerably and make it more fun ultimately just because it was simpler. And as a, as the composer, I had to scrap, I don't know, 20 or 30 tracks repurpose a lot of them and it what a mess but that's that's what this industry is be creative dude yeah how do you how do you stay pragmatic when you're getting instructions from someone who doesn't know music like how do you stay patient with a a, a director yeah i think that's where you got to learn how to communicate with that person i've said this before that the first time i work on a project with somebody um is usually not super fun it's the second time you work with somebody that it's incredibly fun because the first time you're working with somebody, you're just learning how to communicate. You're learning. What do you mean when you say sad? What do you musically, right? What do you Uh mean when you say energetic? And it just, it, sometimes it takes a while. And then there's also the whole learning curve of, as a composer, creating the palette, like creating the sound world that this game fits inside. 
And that game in particular, we tried a lot of things and eventually we settled on the accordion being the main instrument because it was whimsical and funny and goofy, but also could be serious. And it was this, like I, that's the first and probably last soundtrack I've ever written that was heavily, heavily emphasized with jazz, uh, like mm-hmm. big, big band jazz. And it's so goofy. I, I've never written anything like that since. I think I got it out of my system for sure. And it was, you know, a lot of saxophone, a lot of accordion and weird instruments, but it was fun. And I think that that's part of the sound. Theoretically, anyone should be able to listen to three to five seconds of any track from that game and instantly know where it's from because that's Mm. part of that sonic identity. And I think as composers, you know, going back to our earlier conversation about David Wise, I think that is his signature masterpiece touch. That's how you always know it's a David Wise track because you know that he spent weeks picking out the sounds for that thing. And he probably experimented with a thousand sounds, but like that was the one and that became the sound of Donkey Kong or the sound of whatever. Uh, I think that's important and that's, that's why the masters are who they are because it's all, mm-hmm. always about the quality. It's crazy because like, like my first experience of, of really liking you know music in a video game i mean of course like everyone could hum like mario and stuff like that but uh, final fantasy was the the first where i I actually on my own time was you know not playing the game was listening to the soundtracks because i remember uh, a friend of mine hit his cousin had the uh final fantasy 3 soundtrack i think it was like i don't know three discs or something like that or and i just remember listening to that all the time and like a real thing of like why like you're saying like these people are masters like nobu like you hear all that stuff and it's all you know eight bit back in the day but then like you hear it translated over to an orchestra and it sounds amazing yeah you know it's like ode to their just songwriting ability and and i think that's the cool thing that that i've always liked about the music for like the old, older games is that you know even though it's like you know eight bit sounding or you know the sounds aren't like you know now you listen to soundtracks and it's like you know full-blown hundred piece orchestras and all this stuff. And it's, it's like pretty much like movies now, yeah. but yeah, that's, the, that's the thing about like listening to those, those old tracks. It's like, they're so good, you know, whether the sounds were what they were back then or, or with an orchestra, it's crazy. And I think that boils down to the, the intentionality that it's a good theme. It's, it's good harmony. It's good rhythm. And I think all, all good music, or at least, uh, you know, there's a place for ambient music and soundscapes and such. But I think from a just a visceral emotional response, mm-hmm. typically in in video games, you know, you want music that is memorable, that is catchy, that is like little earworms, right? Mm-hmm. And I think that's you find a lot of that in in the old music that is not as common today, and it makes me sad. But that's something I'm very passionate about sticking to my guns. I know I'm, I'm a melodic writer and that's where I, I rest my hat, so to speak. I saw you got a MFA from Columbia College in Chicago. Yeah, that's right. Would you recommend that uh, moving forward? Like, would you do that again? Would you recommend it to a different composer if they're trying to move their way up? Is that a, a reasonable step on the ladder? This is definitely a question I get all the time. And it's, yeah. it's what role does formal education play in this career as a composer? I think it ultimately depends on your life situation. Education is a tool, right? It's a tool just as much as any other training. It, to me, depends on 
is this going to be a good return on your investment of your time and your, your energy and your resources? And I think for someone in the age range of, you know, 18 to 25, and they're single, that is probably a very good investment because where else are you going to make industry connections of that caliber? Where else are you going to literally work with the peers that are going into the industry with you? Where else are you going to learn from masters um, and get hands-on experience working with orchestras and, and learning the ins and outs of, of game composition or, or film composition, what have you? I think there's a, is a serious reason to consider. However, that's not for everybody because what if you're married and you have a family and you have a day job? That might be almost impossible or highly impractical. When will you see the return on your investment, especially when we're talking like six figures of investment for, for bigger school programs? You know, you just have to weigh those things carefully. So I don't think it's quite as binary as should I go to college or not? I think it's, it's much more where are you at in your life right now and what is the most beneficial next step? I think for some people, it is genuinely as simple as grabbing a book on the topic and just go spend 10 bucks and, and dive as, as deep as you can into this topic and go apply what you learned. Sometimes that's all it is. Other people, it's go binge YouTube. That's me. I'm, I'm the school of YouTube. I've learned Same. so <laughs> much from YouTube. Free resources, right? Just go dive in until your curiosities change, right? Uh, for other people who really need to take action and need to be held accountable, it's coaching. It's finding a mentor. It's finding somebody that's going to hold you accountable every single week or every single month, and they're going to give you assignments, and you have to do them or else you're fired, right? <laughs> um, and it, it gives you an opportunity to grow. Uh, for other people, it's it's internships and, and assistantships. It's working with someone else who's in your career field. Um, I have an assistant, right? The, I, I get this, and I was an assistant for years where – it could be anything. It could be working on, on spreadsheets and emails and, and cl you know client communications or going to meetings or whatever. There's so much that you need to learn in this industry, so many hats you have to wear to be successful that any and all of these opportunities are wonderful. And it's not just one thing. As we all know, you have to continually learn. Education is, is not a destination. You, know, you don't finish your education. You finish a degree. You finish a program. You don't stop there. Uh, people who stop learning get crushed, right? You always have to adapt. You always have to learn new skills. And that's what it means to be human. That's what it means to be successful in, in, in this industry is to always be learning and growing. So I don't think it's as simple as, you know, yes or no. But I think it's where are you? What challenges are ahead of you? And maybe one more twist to add is uh, the way that I typically filter education. You know, what should I learn next? What should I be working on? you should just evaluate what will have the greatest impact in your life. What is the next thing that will have the greatest impact? And for me, believe it or not, it's usually personal character development and leadership skills because those two things will have more impact than any, any like secondary skill of, oh, now I can compose better or, oh, now I can you know, produce 1% better because I learned this one little trick. Those things are helpful and great, but they're not going to move the business needle and grow a business. But me learning how to be a great leader and, and hire more help and expand and, and go to conferences and speak at events, like that stuff's really going to move the needle for me. But that's also because I've done so many other things. So it's, you got to focus exactly where you're at and stop trying to live other people's lives, you know, focus on what do I want out of this and, and where, where do I go from here? Nice. nice. How did you get to Atlanta? Born and raised. 
Oh yeah. I, I tried to leave several times, but nope. <laughs> I just kept it's getting like pulled a, back. Like a magnet. Yeah. Yeah, it totally is a magnet. Uh, my family's here, born and raised here. Uh, my wife's family, born and raised here, for the most part. We just have such deep roots and connections, and I, I genuinely have no reason to leave. We have deep roots in our community, in our our, our church family, and our our local businesses, and. Um, I love this. We, we had four seasons over here. I mean, come on. I tried LA for a minute. Oof. When were you in LA? Oh, right after graduating. Um, that's one of the cool things, by the way, for anyone who is specifically considering the Columbia uh, Chicago program. They have a fifth semester. It's a two-year program, but their fifth semester is in Los Angeles, and you do an internship. You get to work with the orchestras out there. Um, that was super cool. I got to meet a lot of my heroes and uh, actually met with uh, Penka Kuneva, who is a, a major Hollywood orchestrator and composer out there. Uh, and I got to remotely assist her because I was about to get married. This is 2014, by the way. Um, I got to remotely assist her for a year, which was super helpful in my first year uh, getting started as a composer professionally. Wow, that's interesting. What is your experience with game jams? Have you ever done any of that? I know uh, a friend of mine, uh, Sean Chase, and we've had him on the podcast. He's a sound iron friend and um i remember when i was talking to him about the whole like you know how would you get started doing video games and he, he was talking about game jams is that something you've ever done or i've personally never done it but i've heard great things and there are members within our our vgm alliance group that have done it to great success and i think if i was 18 years old 20 years old i would do that because or maybe if i was just starting brand new today i would do that the reason i don't is they're typically like 48 hour pulling all nighters, um, time away from family where you're, mm. um, you're basically going to like a conference hall or like a train station or some, some cool spot and you're hanging out with other game developers. You literally form a team for 24 hours, 48 hours, and you just go. And there's no sleep. You just go. And you literally make a game in that amount of time. And here's what I've learned just kind of as a, as a bystander. Haven't done it personally. Um, Composer code, Matt Kenyon has, and he swears by it. And what I've heard is you're basically in a battle zone with strangers who become your fellow comrades and soldiers. And it's such an intense experience that no matter what happens at the end, you all got to go through this crazy emotional journey together with no sleep. And maybe your game is great or maybe it's awful, but... At the end of the day, you got to pump out like 10 pieces of music in 48 hours and you went crazy. And now you get to form these really cool friendships with developers and programmers and artists and whoever else was on your team. And now, you know, weeks and months later, you're all best friends and like you're going to work with each other because you got you built such trust and such an intense experience because you pulled through with intense deadlines intense stress like if that's the worst of the worst you know that in any better circumstances you'll have an even better product so Mm -hmm. i think just psychologically it does wonders so yeah even though i haven't personally done it i've heard great things about um just relationships forming from there which Mm -hmm. turns into paid gigs later if any of those people move on to actually make something and i think some people i've heard stories of game jam games moving on to then you know, they have a concept that then turns into a full-fleshed game and they can go and enter it in all the circuits. And, and I think anything's possible when you, you just start working, you know? 
throwing yourself in the deep end like all right let's go <laughs> it's crazy pulling all nighters doesn't fit with your book family first <laughs> composer it doesn't i mean i would never do that now because there's I have to sacrifice things that are that are non-negotiable for me personally totally how do you meet game developers at this point i'm not the best at this uh this is actually something i've i've had a gut check on um over the last few months because i think i spent all specifically since the pandemic it's been about two years since i've gone to any conferences or or traveled at all for work and i think part of that is just i've been focused on remote remotely working and building a team in person and moving into a studio all the things that can easily distract but um, I have picked up on this that, oh, you know what? If I had just gone to that conference, I might have gotten some gigs from that. Or, you know, if I had just, you know, been a speaker at some of these places, maybe that could have, you know, got the message out further um, for, you know, VGM Alliance or whatever. And I've, I'm learning and I'm trying to get better about this, that there is such power in just being in person. There's a lot of serendipity in this industry that, you can't plan for it's the luck factor you know hard work plus preparation right you have to be mm-hmm. ready for the opportunities but if you don't ever get out there in person then it's hard um i think there's, there's two core ways within this industry everything is word of mouth everything is reputation the entertainment industry in general that's how it works i get repeat client work all the time because i do a great job enjoy the experience have a lot of fun with a client and then there's like a period of silence. Let's yeah. call it six months, nine months, 12 months. And then they come back. And then we work again for a season. So for me, I'm totally cool with having like two or three top clients that I'm just constantly cycling between because we have a great relationship. But I also see the value that if there are not enough clients in the pool, so to speak, that sometimes all of those empty periods co-align at the same time where it's like oh crap I don't have any work for three months and traditionally what I've done is I've focused that downtime on building you know passive income sources which would be uh, video game music alliance which would be book sales licensing video game music packs courses yada 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 there's a lot of uh, opportunities there however now that um, now that I'm establishing a team and and as a team, we need more work. It's no longer about me. It's, it's mm. about the team. You know, we got to stay busy and we got to fund everything. It has become way more apparent that, okay, I need to be, be a little more active in this space. So even for this year, I am planning to, to be more active physically in person at some conferences, to speak at some events, because I think it matters to, there's just too much that happens in, in person, right? Because you bump into someone you haven't seen for years, and it's like, oh, hey, let me introduce you to my friend over here. Just things happen. You hang out afterwards, you get drinks, you go go grab some food, whatever. There's just these moments that it's usually in the non-business moments. It's just the hangout moments of connecting with people on a personal Mm -hmm. level that has nothing to do with video games usually, has everything to do with your personal life and, and your family life and hopes, dreams, visions. And, and those are the types of conversations that you start to connect on a much deeper level. So I have not been the best about that. I think I've proven the model that you can certainly work anywhere in the world uh-huh. in this industry and do just fine, but I don't want to just be fine. Like I really want to take it to that next level. And uh, over the last few years, I've had the opportunity to, to work alongside or to um, interview quite a few, um, what you might call a triple A video game composers 
who've worked on some of the biggest things in the world. And they, there is a trend. These are the people that are at all the events. There's a reason. Not only because the camaraderie, they just love hanging out with fellow game composers. And it's kind of like mm-hmm. their, um, their mecca that they, they get to annually go to these different events and, and meet up with people. But there's also a very practical, um, this is how the world works, uh, yeah. life lesson behind it too. Yeah, it seems like a nice, nice reason to get out of the studio, especially because it's like everyone's just, you know, in their hub the whole time. It's like, all right, I need to get out and, yeah. you know, actually interact with people in person. And um, do you have any any do's and don'ts as far as like if you were, let's say someone's going to a conference, you know, and they're maybe trying to like meet developers or just kind of meet people like any uh, any do's and don'ts for anyone who who is maybe thinking about going that route to try to find work? I don't know. Um, be a human. <laughs> Don't be a robot. Like, don't go expecting to receive something. Mm-hmm. Go and be the person who outgives everyone else. That's always like my life mantra. Anyway, is is lead with generosity. Do what everyone else isn't. And I think typically what everyone else does. If you've ever observed, you know, fresh blood at a conference, it's whew, it's hard to watch. People just walk up with a stack of business cards. And they're just like, yeah, hi. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they're just chucking them out like frisbees. Would you do yeah. this anywhere else? At any point in life, would you just walk up to a stranger and give them a card? Like, what is this? You know, and I get it. There, a lot of people are there for the reason of getting work, but that's not how work happens. That's not how opportunities mm-hmm. happen. Opportunities are a result again of of it's that luck factor of hard work and opportunity. So, typically, it's word of mouth referrals from friends. Um, and here's, here's what I'll say instead of a like do or don't list of things at the conference, I would, I would encourage do your homework before the conference and reach out to the people you want to meet with before hmm. reach out to the AAA composers you want to meet with or the companies or the, like the sample library, the sound irons of the world, right? Reach out to the people who run those things and say, Hey, I'm at this conference or I'm speaking at this conference. Uh, I'm trying to plan some meetings. Are you available? I'd love to hang out. I'd love to meet. That will go mm-hmm. so much further because it's an intentional appointment instead of a, a luck thing. Mm-hmm. And then you actually know what you want to talk about and it just guides the conversation. And especially if you can book a lot of those, you can really get some mileage. Of course, you don't want to treat people like an appointment, but you get what I'm saying that if mm-hmm. you can just do some homework on, on the front end, and then also on the back end, if you do receive some business cards from people you actually are interested in working with, follow up with them immediately, one or two days afterwards. And that way you can continue those conversations and it keeps it keeps it going, keeps the momentum. You don't want to mm-hmm. wait a week because then, you know, that ship has sailed. Yeah. Yeah. I think just just being a being a good hang, you know, I think that's like one of the things I've always heard a lot, you know, people to say, like, just be cool and and, you know. <laughs> don't yeah don't be that guy who's just like hey you know knocking on everyone's door and like you know slipping cards like i've I've heard some people say um i can't remember if i if i read this in the composer code blog but you know people are saying like they'll they'll bring their music on like thumb drives you know or you know pass that out because it's like you know like i don't know if you've ever been to nam but nam's kind of like that too like you get a lot of people that are just like going to every company like hey so-and-so like i like I want to endorse, you know, or, or I want you guys to endorse me or, or whatever. And, it, and a lot of times no one cares. They, yeah. they just thrown away just handfuls of business cards and stuff. But like, you know, just 
meeting people and stuff. And I think just getting to know people, it's like, you know, like, you know, when people talk about networking and all that, it's like, you know, try to like make friends with people. It's like, you know, you're hanging out with a bunch of people that are doing the same thing you're doing. Yeah. You know, and, and don't be that guy. Yeah. And I would throw out another <laughs> challenge and this is a challenge to myself this year as I, as I go, my challenge is I don't want to ask anyone for anything. Instead, I want to be the person who connects if someone presents a problem during a conversation, just a natural conversation, ah, man, I'm really looking for an artist for my game. You know what? Can I connect you to my friend? I want to be the person who connects other people that mm-hmm. always comes back full circle. That will always turn into a blessing later. Um, when you leave with generosity, I've heard it, heard it say this way, that there's two ways to, to rise up. You can crush everyone else, which is competition, and mm-hmm. you'll be the last one standing, or you can lift everyone else up, and in turn, they're going to lift you higher than them. Mm-hmm. And you have that community behind you, that community support. And two different ways. Some people choose one over the other, um, but that's that's how I want to to operate in life. And I, I think good things come when you're generous to others. Yeah, those are uh, very smart words, I would say. <laughs> <laughs> But uh, but yeah, I think I think that about wraps it up for for the podcast. So I want to thank you so much. You know, thank you for your time for coming on and chatting with us and and uh, talking about everything that you do and and uh, yeah, looking forward to catching all your uh, future live streams and stuff too. I, I like I like watching that kind of stuff. So it's it's always cool to watch people working live. Yeah. Well, thank you for being a part and bringing me on today. It's super fun. Absolutely. Good to meet you, Stephen. All right, guys. Go take care.